Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? And you know how painful it is. Esavel helps your in-house team by taking cumbersome tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia Pacific from on and offboarding, procuring devices, to real-time IT support and device management. With our state-of-the-art platform, gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place. Our team of IT support pros are keen to help you grow. So check out esevel.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code ASIA for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. But today, the clouds are the new silos. They're like the silos in the data center, only they're in public. But AWS is a bit of a, a data a silo, as is Azure. You get in there. I mean, we used to call it Hotel California. You can check out anytime you wait, like, but you can never leave, right? A big part of what Snowflake does is, is tear down those silos to allow customers to have the data where they want it. Because it if it's on Snowflake, it doesn't matter which mm. physical infrastructure is behind it. And to share that data easily around the world, that's a, a major change in the whole kind of cloud silo infrastructure problem that we're facing today. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung, and data is the new oil that enterprises need to mobilize for decision-making and insights. With me today, John Robertson, President, Asia Pacific and Japan for Snowflake to help us to think about how data and AI are transforming the region. John, welcome to the show. Bernard, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here today. And I heard you speak excellent Japanese from one of my former uh, colleagues who is now mm -hmm. with Snowflake. So before that, I want to really hear your origin story. So how did you start your career and eventually land up to this role with Snowflake, which is a very well-known data and AI company? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a long, long story, but if I were to keep it kind of simple and to the point, I'm Canadian. I graduated from university at McGill University in Montreal back in 1990 and was looking to just see a bit of the world before I, I think I was becoming, I was going to become a lawyer. That was the original plan. I'm really glad that didn't happen. Uh, and I ended up coming to Japan and I, I got a job with the government for a few years and I learned the language pretty quickly and kind of migrated up to Tokyo and ended up working in IT. And it was kind of being in the right place at the right time, to be honest. Back in the early 90s, most of the big US companies like SAP, Microsoft, Oracle, Cisco, EMC were trying to expand their operations in Japan. And there were very few Westerners that spoke Japanese at the time. So I was kind of a unique candidate for a lot of those companies, and it was really a perfect place to be. So I worked for SAP for a few years. EMC for about eight years. And then I joined what at the time was a subsidiary of EMC's uh, VMware uh, before the IPO. And I was at VMware for almost 15 years in total. And my final role there um, was running the Japan business, which was at the time probably 1,200 employees and close to a billion dollars. Um, but I also had a four and a half year stint in Singapore where I ran Southeast Asia. So I had some some good times uh, traveling the ASEAN region as well. And yeah, after 15 years almost at VMware, the company got real big. Mm. To be honest, the next generation was ready to take over. It felt like it was time for me to move on. And I looked at retiring for a little bit, but you can only watch so much Netflix. And after a couple of weeks of that, I was like, okay, I should probably do something else. And I looked at a couple of big companies, a couple of big SaaS companies and cloud companies that had 
really big opportunities for me. But Snowflake popped on my radar. One of the board of directors was an old colleague of mine, and he suggested I have some interviews. So I'm, I'll never forget this. On Monday, I met with Chris, Chris Dagnan, our CRO. And then on Tuesday, I met with Frank, our, our CEO. On Wednesday, I met with uh, Mike, our CFO. On Thursday, I met with the head of global HR, uh, at the time, a, little, a lady named Shelly. And then Friday afternoon at 4 p.m., I had an offer letter in my inbox and I signed it. So it was basically a, a one-week interview process. But I was so excited by the people I talked to, the vision of the company. And frankly, I, I really like the build phase. Mm. Post-startup, before companies become massive, I like getting from 100 people to 2,000 people. That's kind of what I'm good at. So it really felt like the right fit. And it was such a, a disruptive, exciting technology. Kind of reminded me about the good old days of VMware back in the early 2000s. So I was like really excited to do that again. Mm. So given you are a veteran, done this kind of geographic expansion, building from 100 to 2,000 employees, I think you should probably have some interesting lessons that you can share with my audience on your career journey. Yeah, sure. I mean, oh boy. I mean, there's, I'm, not, I'm not sure how valuable my insight is there, but I'm happy to talk about it. I would say probably the, the biggest thing that I've been focused on in this new role is having worked as a GM, as a country manager in Japan and Southeast Asia, and been a part of Asia Pacific leadership teams for two thirds of my career. The one thing I always notice is that the APJ leaders and teams didn't really add a lot of value to the field. But to be honest, I was kind of like, but you get all these big organizations, typically in Singapore, used to be Hong Kong as well, and kind of a lot of overlay roles, a lot of people with big titles that weren't really in the field engaging with customers. And I always believed in the GM model. Um, in other words, you should have a country manager in Japan, a country manager in India, a country manager in Singapore, in Australia, in Korea, and you should empower those people to run their businesses, invest in their businesses. And I see the APJ role as being one that supports, sometimes protects the field, allows them to do what they have to do to take care of customers and grow the business, and basically educate the headquarters, the US side, on how to do business in these different countries. Because as the Asia Pacific region is, is extremely varied, it's very heterogeneous, everything's different. There's different languages, different religious backgrounds, different GDP different approaches to partners, different maturities in terms of new technologies. Nobody can be an expert of every country in APJ. Mm -hmm. Like I've never, ever met an APJ leader that knows every market perfectly. There's always strengths and weaknesses. So I took on that, 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 this role and I told Frank and Mike and Chris, look, I want to empower the field. That's the way to do it. The customer facing people are most important. And that's how we learn what we have to do to grow these markets. And the company has been very receptive to that. So that's kind of the model and the approach I take. And also, I keep the APJ leadership team very lean. When I joined, we only had 100 people in the region. There was probably 12 people running APJ. Now we have, including all roles, close to 10 times that in the field. Mm -hmm. But the APJ leadership team is still the same 12 positions. So I'm committed to keeping that lean so we can put all our investment in the customer-facing roles across the region. Thanks for sharing that experience and how you're thinking of empowering uh, the managers across the Asia-Pacific region. So I'm going to come to the main subject of the day, which is talking about Snowflake and its presence in the Asia-Pacific region and also getting your perspectives on data and AI in this pretty ever-changing world. So let's start with the market opportunity for Snowflake, which has become a global force to help mobilize the world's data. Can you describe the total market opportunity in why enterprises need to harness their data for insights and building innovations on the data cloud, specifically first globally, and then maybe we drill it down to the Asia Pacific plus Japan region. 
Sure. I mean, that's a very big question, a very big topic. In terms of the actual dollar figure around the total addressable market, it keeps on changing. It keeps on getting bigger, in part because what Snowflake has been doing for the last 12 years is brand new. We've created a new IT area, a, a new opportunity, a new market. And so it's difficult sometimes to define it. I remember when I joined, we thought the global TAM was about 80 billion. It's since revised up to over 100 billion. And every time we do something different with AI or with LLM, all the new acquisitions we have, it, it just expands again and again and again. So it's kind of hard to keep track of the size of the opportunity. Let's say it's real big. And mm. I mean, at the end of the day, half of the world's population resides in APJ. And that's a mm. lot of people that have smartphones, that are creating data every day, that are opening bank accounts, that are getting grab taxis, that are you know, planning vacations, that are shopping online. The amount of data coming from this part of the world is, is just expanding exponentially. So any company in this space has got to invest heavily in APJ because this is where the future is from a data perspective. In terms of our company's approach to the whole thing and the whole concept of the data cloud, it's probably good to just think back about where we came from. So Benoit and Thierry, our two founding fathers, are both engineers. They were principal engineers, SVPs at Oracle. And essentially, they started from scratch to build a data platform that would harness the immense power of the cloud because we kept on seeing... Everybody had a data warehouse on-prem and somebody in the business side of the house would ask a data scientist, hey, what's going on with this? And then you get like a couple of days later, you get some information that was yesterday's data. It's really hard to gain real business insights that reflected the real-time situation, but also it was costly, it was expensive, you had to maintain the infrastructure and it was difficult to get any kind of business insights, let alone sharing data was next to impossible in a secure fashion. So all these challenges that Benoit and Thierry set out to, to fix. So really, they're looking at the, the massive elasticity of the cloud, the ability to ramp up and ramp down resources on demand. And that's kind of where it started. But what we saw over time is as the platform got used by more and more customers around the world, and of course, we started you know, really in the US and Europe, and then about five years ago, we started to invest in Asia Pacific was the customers kept on pushing us to do new things. So originally it was like data warehousing as a service kind of thing. And then that immediately led to data lakes. But then we were looking at data engineering. We we're looking at data application development. The whole concept of instead of bringing the data to your application, developing it and putting it back out to bring the application to the data, to develop your applications on top of your data platform. These mm -hmm. insights and ideas started coming from customers. And originally like, wow, this is faster, better, cheaper, I'm getting real business intelligence, but now I want to share this with my colleagues. I want to share this with my subsidiaries. I want to share this within my partner ecosystem, with my supply chain. And so the idea of data sharing, which used to be sending files and Excel spreadsheets and all that crazy stuff, is now simply giving somebody access to a single source of truth, a single point of truth. Hmm. And that just changed everything. So what I'm trying to say is one of the things I like about this company is that it learns from what customers are using the platform for. And now customers have structured, semi-structured, unstructured data all on this one platform you know, with, with the high levels of enterprise level security that they can make you know, instantaneous business decisions. They can ramp up and ramp down resources on, on demand and they pay for what they use because we're a consumption-based modeling company. But also they can share data with anybody they want to like this. And that's created this whole concept of the data cloud where all these customers have what we call stable edges, which is two organizations sharing data in a secure fashion within Snowflake. And it's really revolutionizing retail, financial services, telco, everything. So that's kind of like 
it started with that and it led to the data cloud, but also customers have still all this on-prem stuff. They're Netera Data, Cloudera, Oracle, you name it. I mean, they're basically migrating. We want to put this on the platform as well. So suddenly we're doing these massive migrations of petabytes, tens of petabytes in some cases of customers' data into the, the Snowflake platform. And it's really changed the way the whole world looks at it. So that's kind of where the companies come from. And in Asia Pacific, we're seeing the same trends here that the US saw maybe two, three years ago as customers mm -hmm. are trying to do the same thing. So we have the advantage of being able to look at what the US did and taking the product they have today, but learning from their history and applying the same principles to the customers over here. Mm. Can you also briefly dive a little bit deeper in the kind of workloads or we call use cases for Snowflake, specifically for your Asia Pacific and Japan customers? And are there any customizations actually require in order to cater to this market or actually it's still one size fits all, you, whatever works in the US, you'll be able to bring it into the local region itself? Yeah, no, there's not a lot of customization of the product required. I mean, localization is important. You have to have a, a knowledge database for post sales, support and services in local language in Korean and Japanese and so forth. Obviously, marketing materials, sales materials have to be localized. But in terms of what the platform does, what the technology does, it's fixing the same problems for the same for customers in all industries. The application of that data could be different from retail to financial services, for example. But essentially, what we're doing behind the scenes is the same thing. So... I would say that it depends on the market's maturity. Japan and Korea, for example, still have a lot on-prem. There's a lot of legacy systems that, that are just ineffective, expensive, and there's very little business insights to be drawn from them. So migrating to Snowflake changes everything. And that was originally what Benoit in theory came up with was, let's stop doing this on-prem, let's leverage the cloud. Mm. And so that's still a huge benefit to the majority of my customers across all industries. But then you go to a place like Indonesia or India, and there are all these cloud-native startups that don't have the legacy. They're just looking for quick insights. And maybe they've been using AWS's uh, product or Azure's product or GCP, and they usually kick the tires in Snowflake and do a POC. And like, wow, this is, this is pretty good. This is faster, better. It's mm. multi-cloud. We're not locked in to one silo. And I think what, what's happening here is in the same way that we had this problem 20, 30 years ago, where the data centers were being built out across the world, and you had a server with an OS and an application on it that was tied to a storage device, and you had all these silos for your Oracle, for your Microsoft, for whatever. And the AWS came along and kind of did a major paradigm shift and said, hey, you don't have to do that anymore. We'll do it for you. And it created the cloud. But today, the clouds are the new silos. They're like the silos in the data center, only they're, they're, they're public. But AWS is a bit of a, a data a silo, uh, as is Azure. You get in there. I mean, we used to call it Hotel California. You can, you can check out anytime you wait, like, but you can never leave, right? A big part of what Snowflake does is, is tear down those silos to allow customers to have the data where they want it. Because it if it's on Snowflake, it doesn't matter which mm. physical infrastructure is behind it. And to share that data easily around the world, that's a, a major change in the whole kind of cloud silo infrastructure problem that we're facing today. Mm. You alluded to like, for example, Snowflake already have presence in Japan, Korea, maybe focusing a lot on migration and maybe for like Indonesia, India, where it's probably new born in the cloud native type enterprises. I'm just pretty interested to know, like, for example, what is the business footprint for Snowflake like in the Asia Pacific region? Is it also specifically for only certain specific industries and verticals? What are the key industries that you see? Maybe it's Asia specific, like agriculture or? 
I would say if you look at the mm-hmm. US, the biggest industry vertical for us in terms of revenue is financial services. Mm. And probably followed by retail, then healthcare, but manufacturing is starting to get big, telco is starting to get big. Over here, again, this happens with a lot of US tech companies. They start in the US, they figure things out, they start to get big, then they expand to Asia you know, a few mm. years later. So we're bringing the technology to market later than the US has already been using it for a while and so forth. So we have this interesting opportunity where we can see where the products come from and how things got started over there, but we don't have to follow the same path. We can move more quickly here. And that's probably my job more than anything else is to accelerate that time to market. So it doesn't take us 10 years to do what the US did, do it in three years or four years kind of thing. Mm. But it's honestly, it's really different by market. In Japan, for example, we're huge in the telco space. We're huge in the retail space. Japan's been open for over four years now. We started off with online retail, ad tech companies. Again, those data savvy, born in the cloud kind of startup types. But it pretty quickly went into some of the biggest customers in the telco space. I mean, both KDDI and Docomo are public references, I'm pretty sure. And the telco space has been huge for us. Obviously, it's a manufacturing country over here. So the biggest automotive and electronics manufacturers have become massive Snowflake users in the last couple of years. And that's different than the US. Manufacturing is probably behind Japan in that sense. Korea is the chables. And what's really interesting because it's really, really quiet for a long time and suddenly, boom, it gets real big, real fast. And it's a global project to create like a, a global data lake. So one of the chables can share data between Korea and US and EMEA. Australia has been open the longest and has followed a kind of similar uh, run to the US. So I would say financial services is becoming the biggest part of our business in Australia. Honestly, it's just really different. And ASEAN's all over the place. I mean, we've got big telcos in the Philippines. They're using us. Telcos as well in Singapore. We've had a lot of success there. And now we're starting to see the banks pop up pretty quickly. So that's one of the things to be an APJ. You have to expect that things are going to grow at different rates in different markets. There's not a like one key market where we tell our field, hey, go after retail. That's not the way we do it. It's you have an event, 2,000 people show up. And you mm. get leads and you start calling on them, but it, it tends to be very different by region in terms of which industry we're being successful with. But again, I said this you know, earlier in the, the, the conversation, we fix the same problems for all industries behind the scenes, right? What we're doing, it doesn't matter what the end user is selling, it, it is the infrastructure challenges they have, the fact that they're trying to come up with a new strategy around AI and LLM. We fix those things regardless of the industry, but we're starting to get very good at those industry verticals because our team's getting bigger. And so in Tokyo, we have a telco sales team, SE team, services team. Mm. Uh, We have a financial services team and big major accounts in Australia. So as we mature and we segment, we're getting more and more people that have 10, 15 years supporting those customers. They speak the lingo, they understand the applications, the data challenges for that particular industry, and that helps us grow more quickly. Given all these insights and you, the way you have actually separating all the different regions and how heterogeneous that the Asia-Pacific region is, what's the one thing you know about Snowflake that very few people would know in deploying in this region then? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's one of the reasons I joined the company, but we don't have a customer success team. So most companies have customer success teams. Mm. And do you, do you know why they have customer success teams? What's your impression of that? It's always trying to help to bring the workload so that they can really fully u- utilize the service and actually tries to be able to retain and actually help the customers to improve their specific um, function and get it, make it better. That's correct. 
Mm. That's correct. That's probably a nice way of putting it. Another way of looking at it is a lot of these companies have signed a customer up for like a five-year SaaS agreement and they haven't deployed it much or they're not they're mm. not leveraging the technology they bought. We used to call it shelfware, but you mm. got a problem. A lot of customers get sold on a big concept and whenever they buy 50 million bucks worth of gear and then 12 months go by and nothing's happened. So mm. we're, we're a consumption company. We don't recognize revenue until the customer uses the credits they buy. And that that is a very key you know aspect of our culture, but our CEOs made it clear we're never going to have a customer success team because every person in the company needs to be focused on customer success, and it's true. Like this isn't like sales talk at all. It's it's a mm-hmm. it's a really we're maniacal about customer success as a part of our our DNA. So mm-hmm. whether you're in sales or systems engineering or professional services, those are like the obvious places to engage with customers to make sure they're having a positive experience. They're using the technology. They're burning their credits happily. The next workload has been cited. That's normal. But I would say that legal, finance, tax team, engineering, and product, they're always engaging with customers directly to learn what's making them happy, what's not. Because at the end of the day, if customers don't consume, we don't recognize the revenue. So we're, we're in lockstep with the customer's usage of our product. And that's mm-hmm. very unique in the cloud space. So I think that's that's something most people don't really know about us, but it's one of the reasons that uh, our, our CSAT is you know so high and our MPS scores are so high as well. That's, that's a very interesting, unique competitive advantage that you have. I want to just dive a little bit because I think you, ju- you had talked about the different businesses that have been using Snowflake. Can you share some very interesting success stories or case studies where Snowflake has actually made a very significant impact in the Asia-Pacific region? Sure. I mean... We've got three big telcos across mm-hmm. the region, three, three that are within the top 10 for sure, probably in the top mm-hmm. five, that have saved 50, 60% of their costs simply by migrating their Teradata, Cloudera, and Exadata systems from on-prem to off-prem. So that alone, I mean, that ignoring mm-hmm. the ability to analyze, get insights mm-hmm. from your data, put that aside for a second, just the cost of managing all that has you know, dropped by 50, in some cases, 60%. So mm. customers are saving you know, these three accounts tens of millions of dollars on what it used to cost them to manage infrastructure and manage a data warehouse or a data lake that they weren't even getting real-time insights from to begin with. So mm. there's just that pure tearing down the silo, taking things from on-prem to off-prem, massive cost savings. That's a, a big part of what drives the enterprise customers uh, for us across the region. And those telco that I'm thinking of are really good examples of that. But then you get into the, the Snowflake platform and suddenly... You're like, you can see and use and share data like this. It's yep. a revolution. And suddenly you're, I can think of a, a great example in, in Tokyo where a retail chain, a convenience store chain, and they had everything on-prem and they're having a hard time getting insights. Now they can see their 10,000 shops around the country and find out at five o'clock on a Friday afternoon around Shinjuku station, if the temperature goes above 30 degrees Celsius, we're going to sell this many beers. And that way they can talk to their suppliers and make sure that the shelves are stocked in time for that. This time a real-time supply chain maximization and efficiency has never been possible before. You literally would have maybe the the manager of that particular convenience store Mm -hmm. would say, looks like it's going to rain. I should get some umbrellas out front. Mm -hmm. Now you're being told based on the weather reports, it's going to rain tomorrow. There's a 90% probability there's going to be two milliliters of rain in the Osaka region. So everybody in every one of our convenience stores that are in this weather area, get those umbrellas out up front now. That kind of stuff is happening all the time with Snowflake customers. And it's really hard to 
put a dollar figure on the return on investment there, but it's big. Since I have you here, right? I want to segue and actually want to get your perspectives as a, probably a thought leader thinking about the trends of data and AI in the Asia Pacific region. And of, of course, recently we have the generative AI advance brought about by ChatGPT. One thing from your observation, given that data is actually very, very important to what people would do with artificial intelligence and machine learning. What are the most interesting trends you see in how businesses or even governments in their adoption of AI? Well, I mean, we're in that kind of hype stage right now where everybody's mm. talking about it and the, the stock market went up for a little while there because of it. So there's a hype and then you get into that disillusionment and then you see the actual usage mm. and deployment of these technologies, right? So I think we're somewhere near the top of the hype phase probably. So everybody asks about it. Whenever you have a seminar with AI on the title, you got standing room only. And every tech company out there says, oh, we're AI now. And they put it in their logo. And I mean, I'm not going to mention any of my competitors, but there's a lot of companies out there that are after what we've created in terms of the data cloud. And now they're suddenly AI companies. So I want to say just first and foremost, I talk about AI with all my customers all the time now, but mm. I would say there's very few customers that have a succinct strategy as of yet, especially in the enterprise space. So still trying to figure it out. Now, the way that our company is approaching it and our CEO uh, says this all the time, and I think it's a great statement, is there is no AI strategy without a data strategy. You put in garbage, you get garbage. And if you play with ChatGPT, it's great for planning a vacation. It's great for maybe summarizing a book that you haven't read that you need to know about. But it, you can ask it questions and it'll hallucinate pretty quickly. <laughs> and you'll, I, Frank, our CEO mentioned, he, he did a little uh, investigation about who is Frank Slootman using ChatGPT. And he got back, Frank Slootman is the CEO of VMware. Okay. Now <laughs> we, we've heard all the cases of lawyers in, I think it was New York that did research on cases to justify their position, but the cases were created by ChatGPT to please the person that was doing the query and ended up with crazy data. That's really what you know customers have to think about. And what we're trying to do is apply what we're doing is applying those two things, the AI models to enterprise data, the customer's enterprise data on the Snowflake platform. So first of all, it's very reliable, single you know, point of truth mm. uh, data, but it's also secure and you're, it's not a garbage in, garbage out problem. There's been a bunch of announcements recently and stuff that we're doing. Uh, a big one was the acquisition of a company called Neva. And Neva mm. was run by a guy named Shudar who works for us now. This was basically the guys that created the Google search engine and decided to lead Google to create an AI-based search engine. And the whole idea is it's a next generation AI-powered uh, intelligence search engine at scale. And we acquired them and their knowledge specifically to fix this problem of how customers' data that resides in the Snowflake platform can be better investigated by AI, get quicker insights, and leverage all the power and the scale and the ramping up and the ramping down, up and down of resources in the cloud via Snowflake. So we have this repository, this global data cloud of customer information that now you can apply AI to. So that's a big part of what we're doing, and Neva is a key key part of that. Sridhar has already been talking at events in India. Uh, he'll be coming to the Asia-Pacific region a lot, I think, next year to help us out. But that vision is pretty exciting for most of our customers. They like that story a lot. Um, and there's been other stuff. You probably heard about Document AI, which allows mm. you to do searches of uh, PDF files to gain insights from you know unstructured data. Mm. Um, I think the NVIDIA announcement was pretty big, but our big event in Las Vegas back in June, we had about 12,000 customers from around the world. Over 500 came from APJ, which was 
which was great. It was the first post-COVID event where people really attended. So we're excited by that. But you had Jensen, the CEO of NVIDIA, and Frank on stage, essentially talking about how we're going to run Snowflake on NVIDIA's chips. So customers don't have to worry about buying them. It's going to be mm. part of our platform to give them all those, those AI you know, insights and, and the speed. So these are some of the things we're doing. And a lot of this is already in private preview, limited GA, but some of the products are already coming out. So we're moving pretty quickly there. But our approach is to get it right for the customers. And nobody knows more about enterprise data than we do. So we're pretty confident we've got the right strategy. Yeah. Mm. The problem with large language models is that, like you said, the ability to hallucinate. And I think where I think Snowflake is trying to be really thoughtful about is actually trying to make sure that whatever data that's used to train specifically maybe LM enterprise search is to, to be authentic so that it is the right piece of information to use, if I, re- uh, if I read it correctly. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. That's exactly mm. what we're doing to avoid that hallucination problem. And mm. you, you have to, another thing that we've said from the beginning is Snowflake is trying to do democratization of data, right? Mm. To allow, because data has always been managed by a very small group of highly skilled, expensive people that are hard to find, hard to hire, and terrible to lose. The data scientists were the only ones that could engage with data and provide the information to you. And we've been trying and successfully, I would say for the last 12 years, expanding the data cloud to allow kind of normal people like me, business people to investigate and do queries and learn about data. This is going to increase in scale exponentially, this democratization. The the same way that my daughter doesn't have to be a data scientist to do a research project now because of ChatGPT, we are essentially providing that ability to our enterprise customers, right? So a normal marketing person or a normal business person will be able to ask those questions of the data in natural language, as opposed to having really high-end programming skill sets. And that's going to change things dramatically. We're still going to need data scientists, no question about it, for the long term. But more and more people, more and more average business people will be able to interact with the data because of LLM and AI. That's what we believe. Mm. So you talk to many of these uh, lead business leaders of the enterprises that you serve when they adopt Snowflake as a solution for their data warehouse on the cloud and also trying to use all your different solutions, maybe the AI ones that are coming as, as such. What would be your advice to them in how to think about data? And what are the kind of challenges typically you as saw of their trusted advisor to guide them through in thinking about their data and AI strategy then? Well, first of all, if your data is not in the cloud, then you're not able mm. to really get any insights from it, monetize it or share it, um, long story short. So the number one thing is what Frank said that I mentioned earlier is you've got to have a data strategy, especially if you're thinking about it and everybody's thinking about AI and LLM. So number one, you have to have a data strategy. If you don't have a really a CDO in your organization that has just been empowered to make organizational change, to, to drive things to the cloud, you need to get that in place as quickly as possible. Now, most big companies, enterprise companies have a CDO, at least in title. But these people have to be a part of the board. They have to be part of the, the decision-making team that's planning the data strategy going forward. And I, I usually meet enterprise customers that have that kind of role or a CTO slash CDO or CIO slash CDO. But I'm more and more, I'm encouraging them to say, look, you need a data strategy. You can't be looking just at, well, we reduce costs a little bit by migrating to Teradata. It's like everything is going in this direction and your competition will eat your lunch. If you don't have a real strong data strategy, first and foremost, have a strategy around your data. How are you going to get it into the cloud? How are you going to put it on a platform that's unified, it's single source of truth, that has high levels of security, that allows you to share data within any kind of ecosystem that you want, 
but at the same time has the power to ramp up and down based on the business needs. That's the piece of advice we give everybody. And that's essentially what we do every day with our customers is to help them achieve those goals. Mm. So my traditional closing question, what does grit look like for Snowflake in the Asia Pacific and Japan region moving forward in the next couple of years? Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> my, my bosses will probably see this at some point. So I have to be careful about what I commit to. But our company, we made it clear, I think it was about a year ago, we announced that we had the intention to be a $10 billion company by fiscal 2029 for us, uh, which is essentially the end of 2028. I would say another goal that I have is to be ubiquitous. I believe we've become close to being the de facto standard in this space. And I want to make sure that the APJ customers, because man, we've got customers in the US in the banking sector, in the tech sector, in the retail sector, in the media sector. So I look at that and I'm like, okay, in the US, that's ubiquitous right now. I want to make sure that we're ubiquitous in APJ. And so I spent the last two and a half years since I joined the company in finding the right talent to help me do that in each geography, specific to those geography needs, to specific to those cultural needs, and build, uh, build out the best team the APJ has ever seen. So five years from now, people look at Snowflake as like they used to look at a Microsoft or an Oracle back when Oracle was fun. <laughs> mm. John, many thanks for this enlightening conversation. I, I would honestly say I've learned a lot from this conversation, just having this 25 to 40 minutes of a quality time with you. So in closing, I have two quick questions. My first is any recommendations that have inspired your life? Well, I've I kind of been inspired in my career, at least professionally, by some of the people I've worked with. Frank Slootman is definitely one of those people. Yeah. You know, Mike, our CFO, Chris, my boss, our CRO, are very inspirational leaders. Uh, I had the honor of working with Pat Gelsinger at uh, VMware for quite a few years. He was another very visionary, powerful guy to work for. Carl Eschenbach, who's now uh, running Workday, was also a boss of mine at VMware. So I've, I've been lucky to work with a real deal. These guys, these powerful guys that are billionaires, but still go on sales calls. That's a real unique thing. And, and more than anything else in my life, those people have inspired my career. I mean, there's not a point of advice there. It's just, if you can find that super powerful executive that still goes up in the morning and can't wait to push the vision, to lead change in the market, to talk to customers, to make the company better, to build culture. I mean, that's the most inspiring for, thing for me professionally. And I'm not saying this because it's Frank, I'm saying because I really believe it. His book, Amp It Up, yep. is the best business book I've ever read on culture. I think there's been, on corporate culture, that is. I think there's been uh, over 100,000 copies already sold. It's in five languages, including obviously English, Korean, and Japanese for our markets. And that book is, is, is a revelation. It's really, really a good read. It talks about data domain, service now, and Snowflake, how we get those companies public, what led to their success. It's a good read for anybody that's in business. I strongly recommend it. Yeah. So those are two professional things. I guess personally, the only thing I would say is that if you're working in tech and you're traveling a lot and you've got those 12-hour days and customer entertainment and stuff, you got to take a break. You got to go camping. You got to spend time with the family and, and turn the switch off whenever you can. I find it's really, really valuable and very important to get physical health drives good mental health, which drives stress relief. So I try to... People say work-life balance. I don't know if that's a real thing for me. I'm I'm checking my phone 24 hours a day. I wake up at two in the morning and I start approving things and I see something, like, oh, I got to deal with this. So I'm not a, a great example of a person who's got quote unquote work-life balance, but you got to switch off sometimes and focus on your family and the things that are really important. And that will revive your imagination. It'll give you physical and mental well-being. And when you come back to work the next day, you'll you know be ready to do things quickly and smart. So 
I mean, that's what I, I try to live by. And I tell my team the same thing. Sometimes, sometimes you're going to take a break. That makes you a better employee, but also makes you a better father, a better mother, a better husband, a better wife. You know? How can my audience find you on LinkedIn? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I mean, yeah, LinkedIn. I mean, there's, you just have to put in like HashCloud or HashMark Data Cloud, HashMark Data Cloud World Tour, and stuff will pop up. There's a lot of it there. So yeah, you mm. can find us on LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm just John Robertson, I believe. Um, I don't know. I haven't checked in a long time, but yeah, we're there. Definitely can find this podcast on YouTube and every major podcast platform out there. And of course, it would be great to have your feedback as well. John, many thanks for coming on the show and I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you very much and stay in touch. Thanks, Bernard. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. It was a lot of fun. Thank you.